1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor.
2: And I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor.
1: On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the crushing reality of Britain's mortgage crisis, self-ID in schools, and the weird and wonderful world of wrestling.
2: First up... For her cover piece this week, The Spectator's economics editor, Kate Andrews, has written about Britain's mortgage time bomb, as the UK faces the sharpest interest rate rise since the 1980s. So, in the year leading up to the general election, can the Conservatives come back from this? Kate joins us now, along with Liam Halligan, economics editor of GB News, Telegraph columnist and author of Home Truths, the UK's Chronic Housing Shortage. Kate, you in your piece this week talk about this crisis which has just hit. Can you explain how we got to this stage and who is to blame?
3: Who's to blame is a big question. Uh, How did we get, and and I'll come back to it, but um, how we got to this point? Well, we had lockdowns. We had a lot of external shocks. We had supply chain problems. We then came out of lockdown having printed more money in one year than we had in the 10 years leading up to it. In addition to this, Russia launches its illegal war against Ukraine and you have all these factors coming together which create quite serious inflation. Um, And in order to tackle inflation, the bank has had to raise interest rates, albeit quite slowly, and I think uh, started doing so long past the point where they could be their most effective. Uh, So people are now not only feeling the pain of higher prices, that's eating into real wages, but they're also feeling the Pain of higher interest rates, and one of the biggest groups to be affected by that is going to be mortgage holders and, and uh, the interest payments that they have to pay. Uh, so this week, we discovered that your average two-year fixed-term mortgage is at 6%. Uh, five-year mortgages are not far behind, at about 5.75%. This comes after an era of ultra-low of ultra interest rates, where people assumed, wrongly, that they would stay low forever. Some people will have taken out mortgages they fundamentally can't afford with even small shifts in interest rates, and that's frankly building up to a big crisis. Um, who's to blame will depend on who you ask. I mean, the broad housing crisis in this country that's been going on for decades, I think that falls at the feet of successive governments. Some interesting polling from the Center for Policy Studies found that over 80% of people don't think the UK's housing market uh, functions properly. And I I would question what the other 20% think, because those 80% are absolutely right. But in terms of interest rates, look, they are they are in the control of the Bank of England. No doubt the government was happy to spend that money during the pandemic during the pandemic, almost as fast as the bank was printing it. However, the Bank of England had been woeful for years now, failing to recognize inflation, failing to move fast enough. And I think a lot of the blame lies at their feet as well.
1: Well, Liam, um, there's a point that Kate makes in her piece, which is that actually by, in historic terms, a uh, 6% in interest rates is not actually uh, especially high. And there'll, there'll be listeners who remember when interest rates were much higher. Uh, so do you think that, that talks of a mortgage crisis, uh, is, is that overblown at the moment? Or, or, or do you agree with Kate that actually the housing market has become, um, uh, so, uh, become such a beast that actually um, we are heading into something of a crisis?
4: So I don't think we're in 2007-2008 territory. I don't think our banks are systemically overexposed to the housing market and in danger of collapsing because they've made massive bets using taxpayers uh, deposits and looking to be bailed out by the government. We're not in a global financial crisis scenario, but we are in a situation of serious mortgage pressure for certain parts of society. Look, as a as a GB News uh, correspondent and a Telegraph columnist, uh, I get lots and lots of emails from people aged 50 and 60 something saying, oh, in my day, it was 15%. If only the youngsters would eat less avocado sandwiches and go to Ibiza less often, they would be able to afford their mortgages. Well, that's not actually true because today's youngsters who've bought their houses, if they're lucky enough to be homeowners, have paid not sort of three or four times their average wage, which was the historic multiple of a house price in the mid-90s when I first bought a property, They've been paying eight, nine or 10 times their average wage for an average house in an average part of the UK. So a lot more if they want to live in the southeast where lots of the jobs are. So they are much, much more indebted. So even at four, five and six percent rates of interests, they're paying as higher share or higher of their income on their mortgages, 30, 35 percent plus 40, 45, 50 percent if they live in the southeast in many cases than their Counterparts back in the 80s and the 90s. So, in other words, interest rates are effectively as high or higher than they were back in the day because indebtedness is so much higher, because houses are so much more expensive, because of what Katie touched on. And she and I have discussed over many years the fundamental shortage of homes here in the UK, which have jacked up prices so much. So, this is partly our housing crisis coming home to roost, our housing shortage. It's partly uh, years of quantitative easing, which was barely remarked upon by the vast majority of the economics commentariat. There are two honourable exceptions on this podcast, or at least two. Uh, and as Katie says, we printed in quotes, though we're not allowed to call it that, we have to call it quantitative easing, and can barely say it. Um, we created more money at the Bank of England in the aftermath of lockdown than we did since the 2008 financial crisis when QE began. And on top of that, a point I've made in the hallowed pages of The Spectator and at various parliamentary committees over recent years, post-COVID QE is much, much more inflationary than pre-COVID QE because pre-COVID QE stayed within the banking system. It was largely contained within financial markets. It led to inflation of asset prices, stocks and bonds, and some upmarket homes in certain London boroughs. Post-COVID QE went straight into the bank accounts of firms and households in the form of uh, furlough and uh, business recovery loans. So it's much, much more inflationary. It's out there running around. It's not contained within the financial services industry and financial assets as a whole. So it's the combination of a grotesque housing shortage ramping up prices making even very modest homeowners highly indebted just to get a basic home where you can you know have a couple of kids we're not talking about mansions here then on top of that lots and lots of qe uh on top of that of course lockdown which meant that even before the war in ukraine even in january 2022 before putin invaded uk inflation was already at a 30 year high and then of course the war in ukraine on top of that. But when we look at the war in Ukraine, I'd say this, oil prices are down 30% over the last year, wholesale gas prices in Europe are a 10th of what they were at their post-invasion peak. So I don't particularly think it's energy price rises caused by the war in Ukraine that's driving this ongoing stubbornly high UK inflation.
2: Kate, as we look towards a general election, presumably next year, how big an issue do you think mortgages is going to be?
3: If rates continue to climb, and it's expected that they will, market expectation is that they'll peak around 6%, but given the terrible inflation data this week, that could go up higher, Um, then this is going to become more painful before it eases off. And of course, it takes months for interest rates to really be felt in the economy, so that would suggest we're not going to see a, a massive fall in interest rates anytime soon. I think the real difficulty for the Tory government at the moment is that it's very hard to see how people feel wealthier next year. We essentially have no growth in the economy I haven't seen a single forecast that suggests we're going to have anything meaningful and then as I said you have inflation eating into people's purchasing power eating into their real wages and let's remember the rate of inflation is falling but prices are still going up just at a slower pace that means that by the time you get to next year if you combine all of these factors people are going to feel even worse off than they do now the government will try to paint a more positive picture that the rate of inflation has fallen that you know we can move into a new era where we can start thinking about those supply side reforms that we can start going for growth Um, but people are not going to feel good they're going to feel terribly let down after some really difficult years during the pandemic Um, so it's impossible to say specifically where mortgage rates are going to be this time next year Um, but I I would feel fairly confident in saying that people are not going to feel wealthier Um, that's almost certain the question is how much poorer do they feel and then who do they blame?
1: Liam, I wonder what you make of Kate's analysis there. I mean, there's been uh, talk of people have talked about mortgage rates being a blue wall time bomb. How bleak do you think this could look for the Conservatives going into 2024's general election?
4: The economy, stupid, said James Carville, Kate's uh, fellow American back in the early 90s, when he was Bill Clinton's chief uh, political strategist and the U.S., economy felt a bit weak and weary under George Bush senior and of course Clinton won the causes of inflation the causes of the mortgage crunch were in our multifaceted as we've been discussing but when people feel poorer and voters feel less well off than they did at the last election it tends to be the incumbent government that gets the blame look Interest rates were extremely low from 2017 to the end of 2021. That means that five-year, three-year, and two-year fixes, where people took out mortgage deals at one, two, two and a half percent, they're now unwinding. Hundreds of thousands of households are seeing that unwind every single month now, between uh today and uh the autumn of twenty four, when we expect the next general election. And that will add up to several million people who have had to remortgage at rates three times plus more, three times plus more than where their mortgages currently are. And that's going to hurt a lot of them. A lot of them are going to be in the southeast, uh, the so-called blue wall. And a lot of them are going to be aged between 25 and 45, exactly the demographic where general elections are won and lost, exactly the moment, the period of life when people so often change from being Tory voters, Labour voters to Tory voters. Well, that shift in the political geography that I've been um, predicting for many years, it's now coming down the tracks much faster because even homeowners, even though they are homeowners expected to be conservatives, they don't like what the Tories have done in terms of managing the, the economy. And they're going to blame the Tories because their mortgages are so much more expensive in some cases Three, four hundred quid a month increase in their mortgage payments. You know, the IFS are saying, you know, they're not into hyperbole most of the time, a 10 or 15% chunk of your income going just in the increment in your mortgage payment, not your mortgage payment, the increase in your mortgage payment. But I wouldn't want to be completely gloomy here. As I said, I don't think there's a systemic financial crisis here. The mortgage pain will be concentrated and particularly deadly for the Conservatives. And I don't think, crucially, banks and building societies in this age of social media, this is going to be the first kind of mortgage crunch in the social media age. They're not going to get into doing quick repossessions because people will be taking videos on their phones in the suburbs and pasting them and there'll be a corporate public relations disaster. I do think the banks and the building societies will show forbearance. I do think we're going to return to what happened in the 50s, 60s and 70s, where mortgage rates went up. Your bank, your building society would offer easily and costlessly for you to extend your loan from 25 to 35 years, maybe 45 years for a bit, maybe change from a repayment mortgage to an interest-only mortgage, again, without penalty, without fuss, in order to do everything possible to keep those monthly payments down and to contain those increases in monthly payments.
1: And and Liam, do you think the government is right to, uh, at the moment it seems anyway, uh, not intervene when it comes to interest rates with with, you know, mortgage relief schemes or any of these other ideas that are being slightly uh, uh, sort of kicked around Westminster this week. Uh, and Kate says in her piece that, that the reason that Jeremy Hunt is not doing these kind of interventions is particularly because of fears about inflation. Uh, do you think it is right that actually the government says, you know, we're not going to try and, and tinker around here, we're, you know, to, to step back and let the, the, the market do its do its work?
4: Well, as we speak in the Treasury, there may well be uh, bespectacled civil servants dusting off some files from the early and the mid 80s marked MyRA, Mortgage Interest Rate Relief at source, perhaps in honour of uh, the recently dearly departed Nigel Lawson, of course, former spectator editor. Myrus may come back in some form. That's making your interest payments on your mortgage as opposed to repayments on the capital tax deductible, not for second homes, not for buy to let empires, but on your principal residence. But even that relatively light market tested intervention with a historic precedent is slightly incongruous because the Bank of England is sort of trying to take demand out of the economy to get down on inflation. And yet. The tax system will then be putting demand back into the economy. So it is slightly incongruous. Now, I think what will happen is that ministers will want to be seen to be raising eyebrows in the direction of lenders, building societies and banks in order to try and contain any sense that there are going to be repossessions uh, uh, and all the kind of nastiness that goes with a mortgage crunch. They're going to try and ride this mortgage crunch out. But look, Kate's right. You just look at financial markets now. You've got the two-year yield on government debt. It's now well above 5%, You know, sustainably above 5%. It's much higher than it was during the time of the mini budget. The mortgage rates aren't higher because they absolutely spiked because the whole media was going bananas and the mortgage companies had an excuse to just hike as much as they wanted. But the market that counts, the two-year, five-year, ten-year government debt market, they, that is now systemically higher than it was back in the autumn of 2022. And we haven't got the low growth tax cutting policies that Truss and Kuateng wanted. So, you know, discuss.
3: The only thing I'd add to that, Liam, is whilst uh, I think the Treasury is primarily focused on tackling inflation and not wanting to do anything that could make it worse, uh, I think there is also a sense to go back to that broader housing crisis that at the moment to bring in it, to bring in any kind of subsidy or even something that's tax deductible would be very difficult for renters to swallow. Um, So a government insider in the piece, and I'm paraphrasing here, basically says to me, yes, the politics of this for the Tory party and mortgages are going to be really hard, but the politics would also be hard if we gave a really nice subsidy or tax break to essentially the middle class that own their home. Um, And in a time where renters, especially younger renters, can't even dream when they can get on the housing ladder, for the government to start supporting people with their mortgages when rents have also been skyrocketing. Let's not forget that a rise in interest rates has a knock-on effect on renters. If people are going to be selling their second properties that they're doing buy-to-let with, well, then the rental market becomes even more squeezed. Um, you know, that would, just, that would just be deeply unfair.
1: Thank you, Kate and Liam. Next, in his column this week, The Spectator's Toby Young has written about children identifying as animals at school. He joins us now, along with the Conservative MP Miriam Cates, who sits on the Education Select Committee. Toby, you begin your column this week with this rather absurd case at a school in Rye where a schoolgirl wanted to identify as a cat. Surely children in cases like this, they are just trolling the teachers, aren't they?
5: Well, that was my initial hunch when I heard about furries in schools and also just heard that conversation I thought surely the girl in this classroom at Rye College is just pretending to identify as a cat because she's trying to trap the kind of woke teacher because the woke teacher feels obliged because she's um, a trans activist or whatever uh, because she's so woke she feels obliged to affirm the self-diagnosis of trans kids and that now is the kind of commonplace approach in schools my impression was, okay, someone is now identifying as a cat and, and, and saying to the teacher, you have to respect my choice to identify as a cat and allow me to meow in class if that's how I identify and crawl around on all fours in the playground and there's nothing you can do Maybe about it. You have a 17-hour nap. 17-hour nap, yeah. Um, be constantly stroked. Um, but um, <laughs> uh, 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 that was my initial impression, that actually the teacher has fallen into this trap. This is a budding little Titania McGrath. Who was having a great deal of fun at the woke teacher 's expense, but then the telegraph ran. A follow-up story in which they said actually this is quite common there's a kid in a school in Wales who identifies as a dinosaur another kid who identifies as a horse has to be taken out to be exercised to go for a canter by one of the staff um, uh, there's a kid who identifies as not the moon but a moon and wears a Harry Potter cloak and goes around putting spells on people um, and um, you know it isn't actually um, uh, a, a brilliant piece of satire by budding Titania McGraths. Turns out these children are genuinely mad. Um, and, 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 and the sort of, but there's a but any sort of, what's great about it, I think, I mean, of course, I feel sorry for these kids, uh, and I don't think for a moment that the school should be kind of indulging them in these fantasies. What's great about it, though, is it's sort of like a reductio ad absurdum of the kind of affirmative approach to trans-identifying kids in schools. And it's sort of an illustration of what can happen if you allow children to part company in their self-understanding with biological reality. Well, what's to stop them then identifying as members of other species? And I kind of kid around with, well, what's next? Can you imagine a child who identifies as a grub telling their doctor this, given how captured the NHS is, given how captured the psychiatric service is, you can imagine a kid identifying as a grub, you know, the doctor nodding along enthusiastically, affirming their identity, and then carting them off to surgery to have their arms and legs (laughs) removed. Um, uh, You know, will the the Church of England, I mean, this is a Church of England School, after all, say, you know, in the interests of inclusion, um, we're going to allow um, people who identify as cats to marry cats. You know, whiskers, do you take... Um, cat self that was the preferred gender pronoun of this girl who identifies as a cat was cat self i mean it it is absolutely extraordinary and and it's hard not to kind of treat it with some levity but actually i think it does point to a kind of a a sort of mass outbreak of psychological malaise within our schools fostered by kind of woke teachers
2: and and miriam you're on the education select committee and, and as toby mentions in his piece next week the department of education is due to relief Release draft guidance on these matters. Can you are you able to give us a sense of what might be in it, and will there be advice on how to deal with children who are identifying as furry phobia, cats, or moons, yeah. or dinosaurs?
6: Well, I I don't know yet what the guidance is going to say, and it's clearly being battered around for a long time. I think people have been calling for this guidance for well over a year now. Every single education question in the House of Commons. Lots of people get up and ask, "When's this guidance coming?" Um, I think there was a leak this earlier this week to the sun which seemed to suggest that uh, it would protect single sex spaces and facilities and sports which is, which is a positive because we know from a recent policy exchange study that um, you know, a phenomenal number of schools are not protecting those spaces and they're going you know, full on self ID but the leak did suggest that schools would be allowed to transition socially transition children with parents permission now i can see the kind of uh, the logic in that and that it's a compromise but personally i don't think that will improve the situation at all in in fact i think it could exacerbate it if you're asking head teachers to uh, make a decision about which children are allowed to transition and which aren't and i think my favorite option would be to prevent schools completely from socially transitioning children with or without parents' permission. Of course, parents should be involved. I think parental involvement is absolutely key. I think it's absolutely scandalous that so many schools are not telling parents when their children express gender distress or when they indeed start to transition. That is an absolute scandal and it should stop. But I don't think even if a parent consents to a child changing gender and inverted comments at school, that it should be allowed.
1: Toby, what do you make of Miriam's view? And I mean, you call in your column the the, the leaks uh, in The Sun, which, of course, we should preface are are leaks not yet officially released, but you think seem to think they're quite robust, don't you?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I perhaps had lower expectations than Miriam of what Downing Street and the DfE were going to come up with, but there is some good stuff in that guidance, and bear in mind it is just... Well, it hasn't been published, and when it is published, it'll just be in draft, and then there'll be a consultation. Um, so it won't come into force until autumn term at the earliest. But it did seem to me that there were some good things in it. There was this, this uh, clause that if you do identify as a member of the opposite sex, you can't participate in competitive sport, which will preserve fairness on sports day in schools. Uh, one thing I particularly liked as a free speech advocate is it said that um, staff and students won't be compelled... To use the preferred gender pronouns of trans identifying kids and at the moment at the free speech union we are almost overwhelmed with cases of teachers contacting us who are either being put through a disciplinary process or who've been fired in one case struck off because they've refused to use the preferred gender pronouns of trans kids so that was very welcome but Miriam I think has rightly identified um, some lo- loopholes. Um, I'm worried about another one, which it. I think that it's said in the Sun leak that um, schools would be able to entirely ignore this guidance if they decide that it's in the welfare of the child to ignore it. And we need to prioritise, you know, protecting a child from harm, safeguarding the child. That, to my mind, is a is a loophole that that woke teachers will drive a coach and horses. Rivell say, in the case of this child even though they are trans, they should be able to compete on sports day. We should be able to insist that everyone use their preferred gender pronouns. It doesn't matter if their parents don't consent to their transitioning, because in the interest of protecting this child, we can ignore all that advice in this particular case. And in fact, they'll just ignore it in every case.
2: And Miriam, is there much cross-party support for this guidance?
6: There's, there are cross-party calls for this guidance. And it's quite interesting, you know, different people on different sides are calling for it for different reasons. And certainly there is consensus among those of us who would call ourselves gender critical. So obviously people like Rosie Duffield have been incredibly brave standing up for this issue. And I think schools are crying out for the guidance as well, because there are obviously schools who are failing children and parents by keeping secrets, by allowing the kind of scandalous teaching to happen that we saw in that, that case of Catgirl. But there are also many, many schools who are just rabbits in headlights Caught in this incredibly difficult issue. And I think whilst what Toby says, uh, you know, the exceptions and things like that sound fine on paper, the reality of what teachers are trying to navigate here is extraordinarily complex. And, you know, rules are one thing, but the pressures that they are standing up to are phenomenal. So children are being told online by trans activists and even some trans charities that they should tell their parents that if they don't transition, they will be suicidal. Now, what parent can stand up to that kind of pressure? Of course they're going to go to the school and say transition my child the head teacher might be perfectly sound and have a good understanding of the law but if they've got activists on their staff who are pushing for this policy how are they going to stand up to that what if their chair of governors is an activist i think we're underestimating the complexity and the nature of the pressure that head teachers are facing and actually the only answer to this is clear black and white rules from the government in this guidance and I think we need to take this back to first principles these are not uniform guidelines you know should your skirt be one inch below the knee or two inches below the knee okay we'll compromise on one and a half you know this is of much more significance than that you know your biological sex whether you're male or female is probably the most fundamental human characteristic and nobody has really thought through the long-term psychological consequences of telling a whole generation of children that you could be the other sex or that sex doesn't matter it's an experiment And as a general rule, we don't carry out those kind of experiments on children. If we can agree that socially transitioning a child is not only an unknown consequence for that child, but also has an impact on the entire school, if we can agree that that's experimental, can we not also agree that schools do not have the authority or the training or the qualification to carry out that kind of uh, of experimental policy, in which case, should we not just say, not in schools?
5: I think there's another dimension to this, which is, if you listen to the conversation between the two 13-year-old girls and their teacher at Rye College, Um, the teacher was being very dogmatic, quite authoritarian. Essentially, it's our way or the highway. You either accept gender identity ideology or you should go to another school and incidentally, you're going to have to stay behind today and I'm going to report you to one of my seniors because of what you've said. Um, That's a breach, I think, on the face of it, of the... Um, Education Act 1996 uh, which does say that if you teach children about politically contentious ideas in the classroom you're supposed to do so with a balance of opposing views and the teacher clearly didn't do that she was teaching what is a very contentious hard left ideological point of view as fact Um, and even though that is a breach of both the law and the guidance the DfE issued last year to try and make sure the law is observed in schools, it isn't being observed. We know it's not being observed. This This is the tip of the iceberg. So how can we make sure that guidance is observed and that kind of thing isn't it doesn't happen anymore well i think one way to do that is to add free speech to the list of values the list of british values that schools are expected to promote so as a list was published in 2014 it isn't bad um, but i think if we add free speech to that that would put schools on notice that they're expected to train their staff in why free speech is important and why when they are teaching children about these very contentious difficult Ideas with all sorts of ramifications, highly political, that they should do so in a balanced, impartial way. Teach children how to think, not what to think.
1: Thank you, Toby and Miriam. And finally, in the arts lead this week, Robert Jackman has written about wrestling from WWE to amateur fights. He says it is growing in popularity. He joins us now along with Anthony Sinfield, who is a professional wrestler. Rob, historically, I'd suggest that wrestling has been something of a niche enjoyment in the UK, but you say in your piece it is suddenly uh, getting much more popular. Why do you think it's had this sudden growth in popularity?
0: Um, I think it had a great pandemic. Um, Unlike a lot of the other uh, sports or, you know, long-running television dramas, it didn't stop at all. Um, So I think a lot of people were watching it during lockdown. Uh, But the other thing that I've picked up on the article is that the quality... And I don't necessarily mean the physical quality of the wrestling, which has always been very high. The quality of the storylines has got a lot better, in my opinion. And I think it's probably, you know, getting through to people that wouldn't normally consider watching the WWE. And can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that for those who perhaps don't quite know what wrestling entails in terms of... Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure there'll be a few out there that have been watching it too. But yeah, I mean, I've been gripped by... There's been a long-running story arc about a a legitimate family in wrestling called the Bloodline. Um, And it's, you know, there's been heirs of Shakespeare or even succession about it. Over the past two years, they've been sort of hoovering up all of the various different championships, sort of plotting against other wrestlers, basically, you know, consolidating themselves as sort of near wrestling gods. And then over the past six months, more recently, we've seen the leader of that become very arrogant, very hubristic, you know, start to kind of let down people in his family to the extent that they're now sort of rebelling against him, which has put everything that they've uh, built up at risk, you know, and like a lot of good dramas, it's better in execution than it is in description. But I think it's been absolutely excellent.
2: Let's bring in Anthony. Anthony, you are a professional wrestler. Can you can you start by telling listeners how you got into wrestling? And can you also tell us a little bit about your character, Tony Sin?
7: Um, yeah, so I I got into it really. It was just sort of itching a, a childhood scratch that I've had for for years really, and trying to find trying to find schools was at one time quite difficult. Um, a lot of the time, they'd be sort of an hour hour and a half journey away from me. And then over lockdown, as Rob was saying, it sort of I got really into it because it just never stopped, and it then inspired me to look for schools, and I found one that was fairly close to me, about half an hour away. So started training and then just one thing led to another um and my character my character is Tony Sim which is an abbreviation of my real name so and I think people would say my character is fairly close to my real personality um and I am a sort of cult leader slash Jesus's evil twin brother that sort of that sort of act
1: and wait so in real life you're you're quite similar to an evil Jesus is what you're what you're saying
7: (laughs) I think
0: I think people would probably describe me as an obnoxious twat. So I
7: love <laughs> those lines.
0: It's funny though, when you speak to people in WWE, a lot of them say what Tony has said about, you know, playing a character that is an exaggerated version of yourselves. And I think, you know, historically, uh, that's been the thing that's tripped people up, you know, when they've tried to do something that's very, very different to who they really are.
2: And how much of the sport well how much of wrestling is sport and how much is entertainment? Where where's the line, Tony?
7: yeah it's hard to say really. I think in terms of in terms of what really hooks people in it's the entertainment that's the most important thing, as, as Rob said, the storylines are what people keep coming back for because the phys- the physical side of it, although it's very impressive and certainly at the top level, the things people can do are almost superhuman, but it is a case of once you've seen it, you've seen it once, and it's it sort of it's diminishing returns thereafter so if you can keep people hooked in with stories and characters that's what historically has always been the most successful
2: and and what sort of storylines have you been involved in so far as tony sin
7: so i've got a i've got an ongoing feud with one of the people that i started training with who uh, harrison leon who is sort of the ultimate good guy that you could picture he's like six foot six incredibly good looking and charismatic and then i'm sort of you know, I'm the antidote to him. That's constantly trying to screw him over. Um, we're we're in a title scene at the moment. I'm the current champion of my promotion. He's number one contender, and there's sort of there's injury angles. Um, I've got a, a druid army attached to me now who sort of do my bidding, so <laughs> they're they're just taking him out whenever possible.
1: Um, Rob, I, I mean for hearing Anthony speaking just now and talking about things like druid army and so on for someone who who, who's never seen any wrestling in in their life it seems quite sort of um uh uh, puzzling i must say i mean do you think there's a sort of difficulty for people like me in terms of like how do you get even get into to watching this sort of stuff i mean what's how how did you uh, start watching wrestling when you sort of for sure i mean it
0: definitely embraces you know the kind of the camp and i think you know one of one of the controversies in wwe is that Certain wrestlers from time to time have shown the ability to teleport when the lights go off, which, uh, you know, is very divisive. I think some people feel that uh, that's silly and sort of infantilizing and they refuse to to watch it, uh, whereas others fully embrace it. I mean, how do you get into it? I think both the WWE and the AEW, you know, are incredibly well-crafted products. They tend to do a lot of storyline recaps. You know, the way they're set up is similar to those American Prestige box sets dramas you know they have people working on this that can if you have the wrestling gene in you they can get you hooked on it you know they they know how to craft a good storyline they know how to sell it to you you know it's a highly professional product I just say give it a go uh there'll be some silly stuff you know there'll be some shocking stuff uh but I've converted a few skeptics over the past few years you know um and it, it
2: sounds great I'm I'm yeah I'm gonna definitely look it up I'm telling you how do people go about watching you is it is it mainly live or is there a big kind of YouTube following online
7: there's yeah there's obviously there's there's promotions all around the, com- all around the country if you look for it but uh, there is there is always a bit of a lag with editing sort of indie wrestling matches because we just don't have the production companies behind us but if you were to search Tony Sin in YouTube or any of the wrestlers that you see at local shows they will have matches posted most people are active on social media so they'll have sort of clips from their matches on there um so yeah sort of I would, I would suggest getting down to a local a local indie wrestling show see seeing how you find it and then sort of you know I personally believe that there should be enough characters in there to sort of hook you in And then sort of doing your own research into the characters that you liked and you would be able to see their sort of back catalogue
0: of work, as
7: it were. Mm.
0: The the only thing I'd add to that as well is that if you do go to indie shows, you know, there's a chance that you'll be seeing people who in five years' time will be in the WWE. You know, some of their big names at the moment, uh, you know, British and Irish names, Becky Lynch, Pete Dunn. You know, 10 years ago, you could have seen these people in community centres or holiday camps if you got lucky, you know, and they're now uh, pretty much at the top of their profession. If you can call it that,
2: Well, Teny, would that be the kind of what you would be hoping to achieve in ten years' time? What What's your your aim with it?
7: Absolutely, I mean, if if WWE or AEW came calling, I would be there in a heartbeat. But I think there are, you know, you have to be realistic in in this, and you sort of have to accept that there are some limitations. I started I started when I was twenty nine, so that's quite old by wrestling standards. There are people that start like we have juniors in our academy that are starting at five. Not to say that they're going to be the future stars, but a lot of the people, Becky Lynch, um, Pete Dunne, Drew, Drew McIntyre, all of who are from Britain and work for WWE, have been WWE champions. They were, yeah, they were on the indies from 18 onwards. So it's sort of, you know, I'm realistic, but there are, there's a strong wrestling presence in Japan. There's a wrestling presence all across Europe. So for me, it's just a case of wanting to experience as much as possible and just go as high as possible and really just enjoying the journey rather than aiming for WWE because, yeah, it's sort of setting yourself up for disappointment if you do that. Thank you, Anthony and Robert.
2: And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, do pick up a copy of the magazine where you can read everything we've talked about and plenty more. I'm Lara Prendergast.
1: And I'm William Moore. And we hope you'll join us again next week.